to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett mike lovett Yes, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky and if love remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt. Yes, the the uh, <laughs> the blind Rabbi Micah himself is here in studio again, and uh, I am very excited to have joining with us Lori Calhoun. And uh, Lori is uh, a senior fellow for the Libertarian Institute. She's an author of of many books, um, in, including. Um, uh, we Can Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age, uh, War and Delusion, etc. But the one I'm very excited to talk about right now because it is it is her latest book and I think one that's going to come around to bite us again. And that's that's a book of, of uh, questioning the COVID company line, critical thinking in hysterical times. Welcome, Lori. So glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Michael. Right on. Well, first, I want to talk about your um, uh, your relationship to the Libertarian Institute. I've had several. Uh, I've I've had Scott on. I've had Keith on a couple of times. Um, uh, so, talk to me a little bit about your relationship to the to the Libertarian Institute and uh, um, and you're you're you know you're quite the author there. Uh, but how did you get involved with them? Okay, sure. Well, I've had a blog since I published my book on drone warfare, We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age. That was published in 2015. And I've had a blog where I've been publishing or posting new articles that update what's going on in the, in the drone wars and the use of unmanned combat aerial vehicles to assassinate people in lands far away. So I've been, I had that blog and Scott or someone maybe at antiwar.com found me somehow. And they, they um, occasionally publish my stuff at antiwar.com or at the Libertarian Institute. And the turning point was about, it was in the midst of what I call the Corona apocalypse about July, 2020, he contacted me and asked me to start contributing at more more actively to the Institute. And at the time, sorry about this. At the time, um, I was, if you want to pause, we could do, I mean, like I'm fine with the, by the way, I'll, I'll cut this out, but, but if you want to go do something, you can with them. If not, I'm okay okay with the parking. Cool it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, (laughs) I thought giving them treats would calm them down, but it had the opposite effect. So now they were like fighting over the treats in their stomachs. Riled them up. Okay. So, um, okay. So can I start again? Should I start again? Yes, go ahead. Libertarian Institute. Yeah. Okay. So Scott contacted me and asked me to contribute more actively to the Libertarian Institute. And that was 
in July of 2020. And at the time, I was just puzzling over what was going on, all of the weird COVID measures and the hysteria and everything. So I thought to myself, this would be a good opportunity to just get my ideas down on paper and try to sort out what's going on. Just use reason to try to figure out what's going on, you know, in, amidst, amidst this barrage of emotive outbursts all around me and all over the world. And so I started writing essays. And basically, it started out just as this philosophical investigation, like what is going on? What are the issues involved in all of these disputes? Instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction, you know, you're you're either with us or you're against us or you're 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 a deplorable kind of attitude. You know, what are the actual questions that are that are posed by by this crisis? And so I started writing these essays. And the crisis, unfortunately, went on and on and on. And so I ended up writing 26 of these essays, and I decided to publish them as a book. And Scott, of course, wanted to publish it since I published all of them at the Libertarian Institute. Um, And so at some point in there, I'm not sure exactly when, he invited me to be a senior fellow. And so the rest is history. Now I'm I'm there at the Libertarian Institute. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, it's a great it's a great institution. It's a great um, think tank. And I, and I really encourage my listeners to go check it out, read the articles there, check out the authors and the thinkers that are there. And, and you know, if you like what you hear and read and see, you know, make a donation. I think I think it's a worthy cause for sure. Yeah, the libertarians. Um, I um, want I wa- I'm sorry. No, no, go, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was going to say the libertarians are the last remaining consistently anti-war group in the United States. I feel like um, Barack Obama kind of wiped out the anti-war left. And as a result, I've gravitated more and more toward libertarianism because I, I feel that war is the most important issue of our day. Um, and followed very closely by liberty, of course. But but war is really, really important. Mm-hmm. If, if you kill people, they don't have any more choices about any of the other social or political issues there are. And so so right. I've always been anti-war, very, very anti-war. And uh, for, for years, I was a registered Democrat. But I left the Democratic Party because it's so corrupt and horrible. And I'm now registered independent. Um, but I really do align with a lot of the perspectives of the Libertarian Institute and libertarians in general, particularly their focus on non-aggression. Right. No, I think that that was a, you know, for me, I actually, um, I, I kind of came from the right, you know, thinking that everything that America did was great. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then realizing that, that, you know, that is not necessarily the case. And it was, it's really, you know, people like Scott, like the, the antiwar.com and, and people like that 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 turned me around, and and I'm sure I read your your articles with op, probably without without knowing it. Right, um, that helped to convince me that yeah, that it's it really, was not. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, it, I feel it, like it, it, it I was feel not like, the right thinking. Right. No, but I feel that that's kind of the default position, particularly for men in the United States. You start out as a sort of conservative pro-war guy. And I think for women, it's the opposite. You start out as like a sort of lefty, you know, uh, pro-rights, anti-war female. And then as you start to see what these two parts of the war party duopoly are really all about, you realize they're both really, they're both kind of horrible and you end up going your own way. Yeah. Well, and I think, and I think that really does tie to your book, and it ties to this COVID crisis because it really was taking the ideas and the philosophy and the um, the strategies of war and and putting it on their own people in the form of this uh, of this COVID um, thing. Um, 
and, and what I really like about what you did here is you can kind of see your thinking. You can kind of see it evolve. You can kind of see it change. Um, in fact, let me before we kind of delve into some of the specifics, what were some of the surprises as you were maybe going back, editing, preparing the book, maybe some of the surprises or some of the things that, that you found that, that you grew in your thinking as you were writing these essays? Yes. Well, certainly in the beginning of the crisis, we were all in a relative state of ignorance. So you see in the very first essays where I'm asking questions about masks and, you know, should we wear a mask and why, why are people so fired up about this? I really tried to take a completely neutral position early on um, because we didn't really know what was going on. But as the data accumulated and we realized that we weren't in the, in the grips of the Black plague or the Black Death, then I I started to perceive how a lot of this was part of a propaganda machine that was being directed toward the citizenry, actually of the world, the entire world. And so I became more and more um, critical of what was going on as we got more data and as things became clarified, um, particularly um, in the run-up to the to the vaccine launches and the incredibly powerful propaganda campaign used to force people to get medical treatments of which they may or may not have had any need. Uh, so I was really struck by the power of the propaganda that was unleashed. And this is when I became more and more critical as people were just becoming as far as I could tell, irrational. You know, they were insisting, for example, that mm. people who had already recovered from COVID undergo vaccination, which is completely anti-scientific. I mean, if you understand how vaccines work, that makes no sense whatsoever, because the only right. thing a vaccine does is it provokes your, your body to get to work producing T-cells and antibodies, which the recovered person obviously did, or they would still be sick or dead. So it was incredibly illogical. Right. And when I when um, when our political leaders including President Biden, started emoting these phrases, these propaganda lines, such as, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated workers. I just realized we had moved into Orwellian territory. This was no longer reason that was driving what was going on. There was some some other thing going on. It had nothing to do with reason. I mean, you can explain part of what went on by appeal to scientific ignorance. A lot of people who spouted these sorts of... Um, contradictory statements actually don't understand anything about science and they were still afraid. But uh, there were also other underlying motives. And I started to see the parallels between the military industrial complex and what had become the medical industrial complex throughout the course of the pandemic. Right, right. I, I think I think one of the I'm not gonna say a tipping point for me, I was clearly in the in the the whole time questioning and, and you know, um, you know, against the authoritarian uh, um, mindset, but but it was very interesting. I think I think one of the funniest we talk about these these emotive responses, and one of them I, I think happened on that on the Joe Rogan podcast when when he had the the doctor. I think he was the official you know spokesperson doctor of CNN, and and he's you know Rogan is is telling him like I've had COVID, I recovered from it. It's, I have natural immunity. And he's basically telling him, well, go get the shot anyway. And Rogan's like, why should I? I should get the shot. And he's like, well, you just need to get the shot. And clearly he was trying to convince him or he thought he could convince him to get the shot. And, and you know, and by doing so, you know, become this like um, 
uh, Maccabee figure of, of like, okay, I, I've, I've, I've done my duty for the country and now everybody should go get the shot. And it, it made no sense. It was, it was simply a way of, of, of helping people or, or of convincing people that they should just follow the rules and follow the, uh, you know, what, what the King says. It was really, in my view, a kind of period of group psychosis. People just were not rational. Yeah. They, they lost their critical bearings. They lost the ability to um, apply reason to what was going on. Um, they were so discombobulated and traumatized by the coverage of, of death on their televisions, for example, with the death ticker tapes. Every single time you turn the TV on, you see all these people right. dying. No attempt to put into a context how many people ordinarily die every day, which is a lot. A lot of people die. And a lot of seniors particularly die of the flu during flu season. So when we started having these supposedly very scary case surges in the fall of 2020, people were freaking out beyond belief because they actually didn't know that a lot of seniors die of the flu every year. So it's true. There were more people getting sick, but that's what happens in the Northern Hemisphere as it gets colder, as winter, as the onset of winter approaches. And so at some point, I mean, I just realized that people were completely out of their minds on this. And it was, it became difficult because of the social pressure, you know, the ugliness that was hurled at, at those of us who raised perfectly respectable scientific criticisms about what was going on. But we were all lumped together into this category of anti-vaxxer, which didn't make any sense. Right. And I, I talk about this over and over again throughout my book about how it makes no sense to call me in particular an anti-vaxxer because I did things like I got the yellow fever vaccine before I went to Africa. And it's required by law, but it's required by law for a good reason. If you get yellow fever, you have a 50% chance of dying. Um, in contrast to COVID-19, right. which I had already survived, you know, I had already survived. That's one argument against getting the vaccine. And the other one is, even if even if I hadn't already had COVID-19, my, my chances, according to all available statistical data, of surviving are something like 99% so or, or higher. And so... So it made no sense, but people were lumping everyone into this uh, category of anti-vaxxer and trying to denigrate them, and it was a very Manichaean division of people, as occurs also during wartime. So I do feel like there was this sort of right. this this um, calculated attempt to deploy the wartime playbook throughout the pandemic to divide people, to pit people against one another. You saw people, um, as you said, yelling in stores at one another, you know, on one side or the other of the, of the divide. I mean, people really became irrational. And it's going to take some time to recover from this because it was such a horrible upheaval in terms of our society. I mean, yes, some people did die, yeah. but it was also very, very harmful just to the spirit of goodwill among people, among neighbors and family members and friends. Absolutely. It, it was like, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the real um, uh, pain, anguish, you know, the, the, the real psychological damage that, that was done over that period of time is going to be cost, you know, to our children, to our neighbors. Um, and, and like you said, like even, even the words that we use, like anti-vaxxer, like even people who got the vaccinate, who got the vaccination and were, were saying that maybe there were some, you know, uh, vaccine injuries, mm -hmm. you know, they were called anti-vaxxer. It just, none of it made any kind of logical sense except for in the, in the, in the logic of propaganda. 
Um, I really, in fact, I want to kind of one one of my favorite titles. You have great titles, by the way. Of all these Thank titles, you. are fantastic. <laughs> one, essence, yeah. And and the, one of the ones that I that I love is um, the COVID nineteen and the collateral damage, killing versus letting die. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think like this kind of speaks to what you are talking about, which is you know. Th- if we really look at the numbers and we, and, and we look at and, and I hate to be cold hearted about this. I really do. But I think it's important that we look at actual facts and we say who actually died and, and, and how much, I mean, are we talking about like, did COVID take months off of their life? Because the people that actually died most of the time were in their late eighties, had several comorbidities. Um, I mean, and, and, and if they didn't die from COVID, they probably would have died from something else and likely did for die from something else now that we're finding out the truth, but they were put COVID-19 as the death. So there's, there's, it's, it's almost impossible. This is where Brett Weinstein says zero is an interesting number because it's almost impossible to get real numbers because they were, they were manufactured from the beginning. It is. It's very difficult to, to get real numbers, and it's going to take decades for people to sort out the data because of ridiculous things that happened. For example, the companies themselves destroyed their placebo classes, and so there's no way to know how the original vaccines fared vis-a-vis a placebo class. You know, you can't actually test a drug without a placebo class. Without a placebo class, you just know that all these people survived, okay? But you don't know if they would have survived had they taken nothing. And so what they did is right. after um, the initial trial that was used to secure emergency use authorization, they gave all of the placebo subjects the vaccine, which means that it is a mess, statistically speaking. You can't really tell what happened and how successful they were because you can't tell whether the vaccine saved these people's lives or they just survived because they w- because they were young and healthy and would have survived anyway, um, which is what the, da- what, what the data suggests from 2020. So one good thing I would say is that we do have data from 2020 before the vaccine launch. So that data can be um, marshaled and can be compared to the data post-vaccine launch. And, and you can see, did the vaccines actually help in, in, that, in that sense, like in terms of the, the population right. mortality? Because we know from 2020 that the people who were dying in Italy, for example, where that was considered to be one of the ground zero places, the average age, I believe, of the Italians who died during the spring of 2020 was 80 and in many parts of the world, the average age of a COVID victim was actually higher than the uh, life expectancy of residents of that place. So that, that happened, for example, in Scotland and a few other places. And so that makes you say, it, it brings you back to the qu- point you were making, which is, uh, hello, all men are mortal. Like, we're going to die. Maybe you don't want to die, but you, at some point, your number is going to be up. When none of us knows when it's going to be, it's a kind of lottery because of biological and environmental factors and choices we make. Some people smoked, some people didn't, some people were exposed to more carcinogens than others, carcinogenic uh, agents than others. We don't know when we're going to go, but we do know that we are going to go. <laughs> I mean, all signs point to right. mortality. <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> yeah. uh, you're right. When I was when I was early on writing these essays. And I was raising these questions that were raised uh, shortly thereafter by the um, in the Barrington uh, Declaration, where they were they were pointing out that these really draconian measures, lockdowns that are 
fundamentally changing the quality of life of all sorts of populations who aren't even vulnerable to COVID-19, they're going to have long-term um, increases of mortality. And we've seen that, unfortunately. The Great Barrington Declaration has been vindicated because we have a lot of excess deaths that are non-virus, okay? And that's even if you right. grant that the people who were, who were recorded as virus deaths were really virus deaths. We don't know that yet. So all of this has to be sorted out. But what we do know is that there were a lot more suicides and there, were a, there are emerging to be more cancer deaths and other uh, disease-related deaths because people were turned away from hospitals or they were deterred from going because they were so terrified to go to a hospital where they might contract Right. COVID-19. Okay. So, um, well, and, 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 and drug abuse is, oh, up, yeah. Oh, yeah. People, abuse. Uh, people were destroyed I mean, financially. So young people, um, the right. people I think who were harmed the, the worst were the young entrepreneurs, the young small businessmen and women who had just started companies. And because they had new companies, they weren't eligible for government support. Those people were destroyed. So when you go through any major city in the United States and in many parts of the world as well, you see all these shuttered stores. Those stores are not coming back. Those were the stores of hardworking men and women who, you know, had ambition and ideas and initiative, and they were destroyed not by the virus, but by the government's policies. Yes, exactly. And by the way, this comes to me. This comes to a, a word that that you coined that I love that I'm totally stealing <laughs> okay. I'm totally taxing from you it's the the corona uh, corona apocalypse and and I, I don't know what when you came up with that or what you were thinking when you came up with that but i immediately thought of you know with my uh i guess biblical background my christian background i thought of of an apocalypse which which you know me people think of like you know death and destruction everywhere but what it really means is is a revealing and uncovering and i think like the coronavirus really revealed the nature of government, the nature of authority, the nature of what people will do when they're told what to do. I mean, a lot of things, it was a great revealing of what, what happened. I think that's important as we go into this new chapter in, in our history. Absolutely. And that's that's an interesting question when I, when I first came up with the term, because you know, it probably was coined simultaneously by other people too, but I definitely coined it believing that it was, you know, my own coinage. You never know. You know, you can always, like, you think you come up with right. a new idea, then you Google <laughs> it and you're like, oh, someone else came up with that idea 10 years ago. So, but uh, I definitely uh, came up it with it. It is good. Yeah, I do. I like it a lot. And I actually wanted to call the book uh, The Corona Apocalypse, but Scott wasn't, he didn't really like that title. So I had to like go back and forth with him with, for a better, for a better title. Um, but I loved it. And I initially used the term, I think, a little bit sarcastically, because I felt like the reaction to the danger was so hyperbolic and so ridiculous. So I think initially, I was using it a little bit sarcastically. And then as it came, as the the as time progressed and the situation became worse rather than better, I started to realize that this is, has really been an assault on basic principles of our society. It's not just, um, you know, death by virus. It's a uh, harm by government. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, again, and I, and I think about, you know, even people who ended up on the right side of the issue, um, overall like how how so many people were fooled and i'm thinking of videos that I, i'm watching in the early days of corona 
like Ben Shapiro and a bunch of these, you know, really kind of right wing, you know, supposedly anti-government guys. <laughs> right. They're not, but, but, you know, they say they are, but, but, you know, they're saying, Oh, it's, you know, we, we need to do this. We need to do, you know, two weeks to, to flatten the curve. That was the, that was the same for so long. And I, and I think we need to stick that in people's faces so often. Two weeks to flatten the curve turned into two years. And, and it was absolutely insane what happened because uh, we allowed it to happen. So just, just like that. It was insane, but it was a really clever setup, honestly, because uh, initially, as I said, none of us knew what was going on. So it was rational initially to err to the side of caution. So when all of these experts, medical experts came up all over the world and said, oh, this is a pandemic, you know, it, people immediately compared it to pandemics of the past and particularly the Black Plague was the image that came to mind. A lot of people have watched disaster right. movies in, in disaster movies. Usually your chance of death is like 99 percent or best case scenario, like 50 percent. OK, so so it's really, really dangerous. And you're going to see the wheelbarrows rolling through the street and picking up the corpses. So that was everyone's initial reaction, partly because of the strength of the government reactions. So because they closed all the borders, then the populace reasoned logically, I believe, that it must be a dire situation. Why else would they close all the borders? This has never been done in human history. They closed all the borders all over the entire globe, all over the planet. So it must be incredibly dangerous. And people who don't do what they're being told, you know, are idiots. This, this was the initial uh, take. But as the data amassed and it became more and more obvious that people were not dying left and right. I mean, a lot of Americans actually never knew a person who died of COVID. So, so it, it became right. clear that it was really overhyped and you could say that government officials were erring to the side of caution, but as time progressed and it became less and less plausible that we were at in any really severe, um, sort of danger, unless we were in a very narrow cohort of elderly, already sick and obese people, because those were the groups that died. Usually they had all three of those issues, the people who died. Um, but everyone else, you know, this whole idea of not allowing children to go to school, not allowing healthy people to go to work, not allowing small businesses to carry on. Um, that was a complete overreaction. And what happened was the government officials, it was a snowballing effect. So the government officials would uh, apply some sort of measure, impose some emergency law. And when it didn't lower the case count, then they inferred that it must be because people weren't really following the rules. So then they started talking to right. their populace as though they were toddlers. Like you're naughty. You've been going out and partying. You've been, you know, you've been going to the beach. You've been doing all these things that are dangerous. You're spreading the virus dust everywhere. And it just became worse and worse. It became this really ugly blame game where public officials wanted to believe that their measures were good. And so when their measures didn't work, they started blaming the populace. And it was it was mm -hmm. wild to witness, honestly. And, and this is where I, I don't think enough credit goes to a good friend of our program. And and he's been on a couple of times and I, I and I really doesn't get enough credit for being the facilitator of the Great Barrington Declaration. And that's Jeffrey Tucker, who kind of put that conference together and, and you know, really uh, it, it was it was it didn't it happened almost by accident, but it happened nonetheless. And. And I give those people just tons of credit because they were at the forefront of saying, listen, this is how we've always dealt with these situations. This is what works. We need to protect those who are vulnerable and we need to let those 
the rest of us to live our lives and and you know allow this to turn into an endemic and 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 you know let the let things settle down and that's the safest best way to go and and those people were crucified they for were, saying that they were it took a huge amount of courage for and, those people to stand up because there was so much social pressure and there was there was so much professional pressure put on these people so this yes. is why so many doctors were silent they were really afraid not necessarily of the virus they were afraid of professional censure and of really losing their careers because they're completely discredited as quacks if they disagreed with anthony fauci and company um so it was horrible and the you know i also applaud the authors of the great barrington declaration they suffered uh, mightily. A lot of these people lost their jobs. Yeah. They lost their licenses in some places. Their their license to practice medicine. I mean, it was really insane. I mean, and these these are people who understand epidemiology. They understand virology. They know that if you can't survive a vi virus by natural immunity, that means by definition, there can be no effective vaccine against it. That's that's what it means. Right. Because the vaccine basically just hijacks your immune system. So if your immune system can't uh, can't can't make it, then a vaccine's not gonna help you. You know, it just means, you know, you're gonna die of it. That's all there is to it. You know, and and you know, it's hard it's hard to not I'd love to get your take on this because it's hard not to go down rabbit holes of um, you know, all the way down to who actually, you know, created the virus mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think it's important to, to um, point out number one, those, the, the, that the people that, that said, Hey, the virus probably came from a lab who were also crucified mm -hmm. turned out to be right. Mm -hmm. And, and number two, the people um, who were most to gain by, um, by locking us down, making us sicker, and um, and forcing, uh, making it impossible to have alternative remedies. I, I mean, our, a governor of a so-called you know purplish red state here in Arizona said that you know he's no doctor, but somehow he made it illegal for doctors to, to prescribe ivermectin. And it's like, wait, where do you get the 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 authority to do such things? So so making it's really setting up the situation where there's only one solution to the problem and it's this vaccine from these big companies. I'd like to get, I mean, am I saying that right? Is that, you is that your take that. or am I You am are I saying somewhere? that right. And what you're describing is the sad reality that our federal agencies have been completely captured by industry forces. So the FDA, I mean, I talk about this at length in my book, also in the opioid crisis, a similar thing happened where the FDA actually facilitated yeah. what became the opioid crisis by allowing Purdue Pharma, everyone wants to blame Purdue Pharma and Sackler, but in fact, the FDA approved OxyContin and approved a package insert, which stated that it was basically non-addictive, could be prescribed widely for all sorts of general uses and was less subject to abuse. Well, of course, the companies took that and ran with it. So they did a massive marketing campaign to convince doctors to prescribe narcotics to their patients often who had minor bouts of pain or temporary issues that could have been dealt with and should have been dealt with, with non-narcotic painkillers. And the rest is history. You see it playing out in our streets all over the, all over the, uh, all over the country. And so that's the, that, that is a story that was going on still. I mean, when the whole vaccine issue came up and people nonetheless 
just surrendered their faculties of reasoning when people like uh, Rochelle Walensky and Anthony Fauci came out and said, oh, the FDA is the gold standard. So if they gave this emergency use authorization, then of course you should take the vaccine. You know, without just forgetting the whole opioid crisis, that never happened, even though it's happening as we as we speak. Um, and so in the case of the vaccines, it becomes more and more sinister. And if you get to the end of my book, uh, the denouement is really f- unbelievable. But uh, I end up concluding that there were multiple reasons for pushing for maximum vaccine uptake. The most obvious is going to be, of course, just direct profit. You sell more shots, you get more money. But they also wanted to test this new mRNA technology, which was never tested before on a human population. And uh, this was a fabulous opportunity for them. And they also want to be protected for perpetuity from lawsuits in the event of adverse effects. So how do you get that in the United States? Well, the PREP Act uh, offers these companies protection so long as their products are being used under an emergency use authorization. That expired on May 11th, 2023. But the PREP Act also protects companies for perpetuity for any remedy that is placed on the childhood immunization schedule. So guess what? Two months before the emergency use authorization expired, the shots were put onto the childhood immunization schedule, even though everyone knows that children are the least vulnerable cohort of them all. And amazingly enough, they are re- they're not required, but it's a recommendation from the CDC that children from six months forward get not only the original shot, but also every subsequent booster. So what is the upshot of this? I argue the upshot of the shots. Um, I argue that, right. <laughs> you know, if you're asking uh parents to inject their children with the original vaccine that was created against a variant which probably no longer exists, then you're not doing anything uh, to help the child's health. Because the whole reason why the variants exist is because the virus has mutated so as to evade the spike protein antibodies that were evoked by the injection of the mRNA for the spike protein into bodies. So I don't know if you know how the mRNA shots work. It's a sort of tricky kind of weird scheme where instead of injecting people with a small amount of the live virus or the dead virus, the mRNA shots inject into your body a small amount of the mRNA that codes for the protein, the spike protein, which the original virus used to enter cells, enter host cells. Well, um, as soon as we saw that... And then what happens is your body detects this pseudo-foreign protein that was produced by its own body. Uh, It detects it as an invader and then launches an immune response. Okay. So what happened is within months, we saw after the vaccine launched, people who had been vaccinated were getting sick again. So that was clear evidence that the virus had already mutated. So the virus had mutated to Mm -hmm. survive as things do, according to evolutionary theory, um, in order to evade the spike protein antibodies. So once the virus had had mutated so that those antibodies were no longer going to stop it from entering host cells, then that original vaccine became completely useless. Okay, so the fact that now they have this on the childhood immunization schedule is really telling. Uh, It means not only that they want to sell those shots, you know, forever to every child who at least wants to attend a public school in a place like Massachusetts, where they're now going to be mandated. Um, It means not only that they want to, to sell all of the shots, you know, year after year after year, 
But it also means that they want to collect more data because every booster is effectively an experimental trial. Every new booster is is a group of research scientists' best guess of how the virus recently mutated. So each and every booster is a new experimental trial. And thirdly, this protects the manufacturers of the original uh, vaccine and every booster in perpetuity from lawsuits in the, in the in the event of adverse effects, whether short term or long term. And we don't know what the long term effects will be yet because it hasn't been long enough. But uh, it's very sinister. The whole thing illustrates well, beautifully it- or horrifically, I should say, regulatory capture. Yeah, and it's and it's not as if you're you're um, putting into their body some benign you know, uh, serum. I mean, we know that the spike protein is causing severe problems. It's causing, it's causing heart problems in, in young men. It's causing, um, I mean, I think, I think it's proven now that it's causing, um, uh, 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 reproductive problems in young ladies. It's Mm -hmm. causing all kinds of issues, um, all around and people, um, you know, uh, so, so to, to give, (laughs) <laughs> to give a child, you know, it's, it's not, in other words, like you were killing people for profit. There's like, there's no yeah. other way to say no, that. There's no other way to put, to put it. And, and again, you can compare it to the opioid crisis where granted the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and all the other companies, which really profited from the um, gross overprescription of narcotics to Americans, including Johnson and Johnson, mm-hmm. which, which uh, planted a whole bunch of, poppy fields here in Tasmania, where I am right now, to meet the demand of of prescriptions. All of those uh, companies, they were acting as ruthless capitalists who just are, are seeking profit. They weren't trying to kill anyone. But what they did is they ignored the likely outcomes, the likely side effects of their quest for profit. Okay, so the same thing is happening right. here in in the push for the vaccines. They're ignoring all that. I mean, as you know, uh, people who stand up and claim that they were vaccine injured are immediately denounced as you know crackpots. They're crazy. It can't be true. Um, but we know that some of these people have been injured, and uh, the CDC itself, as you said, has acknowledged that myocarditis and heart inflammation and my, uh, pericarditis, strokes, all these things are consequences of of the spike protein. The spike protein is biologically active is the way to put it, like in a sentence. The spike protein, remember, was used by the original virus to penetrate cells. It's called spike protein for a reason. It it spikes into the cell and allows the the virus to uh, perpetuate itself. And so it's really not surprising at all that it should have these adverse effects. It's all going to depend on the person's body. So if the body produced a huge amount of spike protein, that maybe is going to get infested in your brain or your organs, your heart, whatever. Um, It's going to depend person to person. A lot of people were not affected adversely, but some people were. And so this is why it always has to be, in my view, a matter of personal medical choice, what you do. Because if you happen to be on the losing end of the adverse effects bell curve, you know, the bell curve of, of effects, you know, some people will be affected really positively and some people will be affected really negatively. Most people land right in the middle. But if you happen to be on the losing end of the adverse effects bell curve, you could actually lose your life um, or have a severely degraded uh, physical condition for the rest of your life. 
that you have to make the decision. You can't. And, and, you can't. You can't have political leaders dictating for an entire population that they need to inject, you know, whatever elixir into their into their arm because their number one donor was Pfizer. You know, that's really crazy, and yet people well, went along with it. And that's and that's a point. I know you got you go into this in your book, but it, the regulatory capture is one thing, but it is it's it's not as if you know the government you know, was trying to not get captured. They were happily captured and they were happy because, because it gave them, um, you know, it, it's a quid pro quo. You get the money, you get to do this. And I, uh, man, all of a sudden I have this power to lock people down. I have the power to, to, to have, all, I have all these powers that I, you know, in the United States at least constitutionally don't have, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to assume and people are going to believe that I have, um, and so it's this quid pro quo relationship that ends up happening where the government's like, it's almost like a lot of times, you know, when, when Congress passes a law, you know, they, they'll say, you know, according to whatever administrative thing, they'll, they'll decide, you know, what the, you know, how the law is, is administered. Well, all that happens is it just passes that law to the, to the president to say, okay, we're going, you know, it, it's passing the buck down. And so the government's like, Hey, We'll get captured. We'll get more control. You get more money. Win win. And who loses is, is all of us. Yeah, it's an oligarchy. What, our system now is an oligarchy, and it's very clear in the medical um, realm where uh, the opinion of the populace is completely ignored. People don't really care. You know, it's it, they're they're in Washington. They're constantly cajoled by lobbyists in the military industry. And so every single potential opportunity for shipping arms abroad, for getting involved in some conflict is supported by politicians. And the same thing has happened with, with the medical realm now um, since this pandemic. So uh, it's, you're right. It gives, it gives politicians a huge amount of power that they didn't have. And they also have this ability to shirk responsibility when things don't, don't go the way they mm -hmm. want them to, or, or the way they said that they would go. So it's also completely parallel. So you have the um, military industrial complex and what I call them, the medical in industrial complex, and they're actually intertwined now. Uh, but what happens is right. the same sort of framework is used to absolve all officials from responsibility. So even though, uh, you know, there were all sorts of um, excess deaths, no one is held responsibility for held responsible for any of this. So you still see Anthony right. Fauci making the television rounds for heaven's sake, even though the United right. States, why is he not in prison? <laughs> people don't know this. The United States had the worst outcome in terms of both virus deaths and non-virus excess deaths than any other advanced nation, despite having spent more money per GDP than any other country on the planet, uh, aside from Singapore. So the United States poured a huge amount of money. It was a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class to the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, Americans just had to pay for it in the way that they're, you know, I don't know, we want to discuss Ukraine, but we're paying for this Ukraine, um, you know, yeah. tobacco is what it can only be. Debacle. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's really no other way yeah. to because the Ukraine situation, you know, either it it ends at the negotiation table or it ends in nuclear holocaust um but if it's it's going to end at the uh, sorry at the negotiation table then it's just been a meat grinder this this whole last uh how long has it been a year and a half it's just been uh we throw young ukrainian men into the meat grinder and out comes mic profits for arms manufacturers in the united states it's really obscene honestly it really is 
it is so obscene and and you know wow you know for yeah, well I, you, I, you can go deep there because it, it, it it's the type of thing that anybody who is a christian anybody who who has a belief in in you know a god you know it's like man there's got to be something coming because because that is it's it's to be sacrificing this many people to the god of government and profit and uh gain i mean it's it, and 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 we and we just we just because it's not right in our face and i think that's the difference with covid one of the differences is because it was put so much in our face and my hope is when the next one come and it will um that that we will be able to be like uh, at least a few more people will be able to stand up and say and read your book and be like, we got, we got to stand up to this mess because, because we got screwed the last time. Right. Exactly. Um, because you're right. It doesn't happen in the military, uh, realm as a good example that I often refer to Afghanistan. We walked away from Afghanistan after 20 years of being told that we have to democratize Afghanistan. We have to liberate the women of Afghanistan. And now the Taliban are running the country again, just like they were in 2001. So in the, in between 2001 and 2021, all that happened was death, destruction, terrorism on the part of the military invaders, you know, over the, the people who live there and uh, massive profiteering. That's all that happened. So uh, right. the same thing. And, and so instead of doing some soul searching and saying, you know, what, maybe this was a mistake, this whole Afghanistan thing, or at least admitting that once Osama bin Laden and company were gone, there was no reason to stay there for another 10 years. But, it, but instead they just, they just move right on and act like it never happened. And you see this also right now in, in the COVID, uh, what should be the post COVID world, you know, here we have Biden issuing millions of dollars uh, to have in-home testing again. He wants to have in-home testing. Well, all in-home testing does is freak people out. So it rehydrates their their fear. And so they're ready for the next booster. I mean, the guy is really shameless. Uh, or I'm not actually entirely sure he's responsible, but if he is, if he is like aware <laughs> the, the, of what he's doing. The presidency which, <laughs> is shameless. <laughs> yeah, let's just put it this way. Whoever's, whoever's behind, whoever's running the, the Biden puppet show is shameless. Let's put it this way. I mean, right. it's they just act like nothing ever happened or or Fauci he goes on television and says oh I saved millions of lives this is what I've done well this is no this is actually false and again going back to the 2020 data we know what your percentages of survival were with no vaccine at all so he didn't save any lives and all of the excess deaths that were caused by not allowing people to go to the doctor or the hospital when they needed to but they didn't have COVID or they didn't have a shot or they were too terrified to go because they had been propagandized and traumatized by their very own government all of those deaths, you know, he just sort of shrugs, shrugs his shoulder, I suppose, and says, oh, well, you know, I, I think he said at one point, I don't give economic advice. <laughs> so, so the guy's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, he's really bad. No, his latest on Mask. I, I don't know if you heard his latest on Mask. So there's this really, no. uh, there's a scrupulous study that, that compares what went on all over the world with masking and, and whether masks had a positive effect or not. So, you know, there's the, the very logical common sense science argument that, 
you know, a virus that is smaller than the pores of a piece of cloth is not going to be stopped by that piece of cloth. So you can just go at it with that. But this study looks at all, all of what happened, all the consequences, and concludes that, in fact, masks had no effect whatsoever. So when Fauci was confronted with this on, I believe, CNN, which is kind of already a breakthrough, I suppose, that they're even willing to ask these questions, um, he, his right. response was, well, you know, but it can be different on an individual level. So basically, your mileage may vary. It's his new take on masks. <laughs> like, like even though we have all this scientific data, we're supposed to listen to the science, but your mileage may may vary, oh, and, and you might want to wear a mask we're, anyway. We're in, <laughs> we're in such a post-scientific world. It's we insane. It's, yeah. Uh, and it's sad. Really One of the you, saddest you, things I learned over the course of this period of history is how ignorant people are of basic precepts of science. They really just... They're daunted by science and they feel a little bit helpless and they very it's very easy to persuade them to just renounce their ability to decide anything on the grounds that they're not experts. So this whole propaganda line, stay in your own lane, don't do your own research, this really was taken up by all sorts of ostensibly intelligent people who didn't have formal training in science, but they just decided we're going to do whatever the authorities tell us to do. Why? Because they were in such an abject state of fear for their own lives. It was it was government induced trauma all the way. Well, and and and, and I will add, um, and it's I think also has to do with with the mask mandate as well as the vaccine mandate. There are so many people that were put in impossible positions. You know, their jobs required it because the government required it. They're you know they they weren't able to go to church until so many percentage of a certain community was vaccinated. I mean, it was it it was an insanity beyond any kind of, it, it, it was a cult that we were involved with. Absolutely. Um, There's no other way to put it. It was, I mean, I refer to these people as branch Covidians because it was so cult-like. Um, so yeah, I have an, one of my chapters is called conscience and non-compliance, the case of the COVID-19 vaccine. And I talk about exactly that, that dilemma that people were put in people who, who are heads of households, they're, they're raising children, they couldn't afford to walk away from their jobs. And so they were put in this horrible moral dilemma. Should I do what I truly believe is wrong? Because it makes no sense. I mean, I'm taking uh, an unneeded risk just to comply with a completely nonsensical requirement. Um, or, you know, am I going to end up homeless along with my family? It was easier, I think, for individuals to stand up against this madness but it was really difficult for people who were um raising children they just they didn't really know exactly what to do and so um there it was very difficult yeah oh i was just gonna say as as, as one who who was and is raising children you know and, and as a musician like the how did i make my money i made my money by teaching in people's homes and i made a month and i made money you know by performing mm -hmm. and both of those things just were stripped away immediately yeah. And, um, you know, it was very difficult, you know, and um, yeah, it's it, 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 if you're and if you're if you've got, you know, I was in a fortunate position where I was self-employed. And so I could kind of like maneuver my way through. But and I wasn't forced to. I could make the decision, you know, without, right. um, you know, losing my job. But, but so many people weren't in that position. No, exactly. They I didn't have privileged. any backup savings. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't own their own home. They didn't have any backup savings. People were really, uh, stuck between, um, 
you know, Charybdis and Scylla, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. A lot of people, as I said, were destroyed. It's not coincidental that we have tent encampments all over the United States at this point. It's not coincidental. Yeah. A lot of those people lost their businesses, lost the roof over their head. Many of them were in the gig, gig economy, which was really you know, harmed the worst by the lockdowns because these people didn't yeah. have salary positions. They didn't have pensions. They didn't own their homes and they were really, really harmed by this. And then some of them, of course, resorted to drug use and some of them ended up dead. So we had, I think, 109,000 drug overdose deaths last year. That's incredible. That's, you know, and, and this it's is incredible. Like, and it, it it just it makes me so angry, and I apologize for interrupting, but it makes no, me no. so angry because no. because I'm thinking about I'm thinking about what was said, and what was said was, oh, we're just gonna take we're gonna take a pause, and it'll come back. This is Trump. We're gonna take a pause. Yeah. We're gonna come back. Everything will be fine. As if the economy runs like that. As if the economy just like oh we can you know it's 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 the same thing. Oh, oh you know what you can stop hormones and stuff and we'll just take a pause and we'll start up. No, there's gonna be no consequences. Yeah. And all of these things, it's, it there's they're long. We are feeling these consequences. I I um I I, I try to help out. I I do a show once in a while for for St. Vincent de Paul, which is a homeless shelter here in Phoenix, and. And, you know, so I, I see some of these stats once in a while, you know, 7,000 people were just, you know, uh, evicted from their home in the mm-hmm. last month. And and you see these things and you think, you know, those are those are consequences of, of you know, it, you know, it's inception consequence, inception like consequence. Where if you dig deeper and deeper and deeper, like a lot of those, you can point back to the, the covid lockdowns. Absolutely. I mean, people just couldn't earn a living. And many of these people were already barely making ends meet. And then it just became impossible for Mm -hmm. them. It was. um, And as you know, there's a major housing crisis in the in the United States. The the price of rents is so insane at this point. And I I don't really see how that's going to be fixed in in anytime soon. Um, A lot of price gouging. And the consequence is uh, homeless encampments everywhere in cities. I mean, I traveled, I I came back to the United States, but I traveled around the United States and saw some of these cities I had lived in before, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, um, Philadelphia, these places, they are unrecognizable. You know, there are all these zombies in the streets and people living in tents. And it's, it really looks like a third world country in some of these places. And this became much, much worse as a result of the lockdowns because, Perfectly um, hardworking people were prevented from working. Um, and it wasn't because they were sick. It was because the government made it no, illegal. Their businesses were shut down. Yeah. Yeah. People, people's businesses it's were shut tragedy. down and they can't hire. It's a tragedy because the it people really with is. the small businesses, they're like the most um, resourceful people. They kind of, ha- they embody the American spirit and they were crushed yeah. by their very own government. It's awful. I mean, we're, what happened? We're never, it's going to take a long time to recover from this um, as a society, I think. There, you have a, you have a chapter in here and I, I want to address it just because it's, I found it interesting that it was in here. So I want to, you know, uh, talk about you, you write a chapter on throttling the truth. Why the case of Julian Assange is more important than ever. What does Julian Assange have to do with the COVID crisis that we went through? And, and why is his story still important today? Well, it turns out it's, 
really important, as we know from the Twitter files, the, the United States government was right. suppressing the speech of dissidents throughout the corona apocalypse. So, so people started to believe that there was this incredible consensus, you know, congealing around the thought of Anthony Fauci and like anyone who disagreed with him then was some kind of nutcase quack, you know, like RFK Jr. Mm -hmm. wrote a book about Anthony Fauci. Obviously he's insane. He's an anti-vaxxer. So this view uh, was taken up by people because all of the alternative, almost all of the alternative scientific views were expunged from social media. And of course they were not aired on, on the pharma captured mainstream media. And so as a result, um, all of this dissent was, was suppressed, even in cases we now know from the Twitter files where the, the censors believed that it was a, a fact what was being suppressed. So for example, vaccine injury, they didn't want to let anyone know that there actually were vaccine injuries, that it, they believed that it was true that there were vaccine injuries, but they didn't want anyone in the populace to know because they were afraid that would diminish the uptake of the vaccine. So I argue in here that, uh, you know, Charitably, you could say that they were using utilitarian reasoning and saying, okay, more people will die if you let the truth out than would die if you didn't let the truth out. So all things considered, we should suppress the truth because that will increase the number of people who survive because they took the vaccine, even though there will be a few outliers who die of the, the adverse effects. So that's what I argue charitably. But as the plot thickened, I mean, it's almost like a crime scene. You know, it's like a crime thriller as, as things developed. And you saw <laughs> things such as uh, Rochelle Walensky encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated, even though they were ex pregnant women were excluded from the trials used to secure emergency use authorization. She said, and she said this over and over again on national television, there's no evidence that the vaccines harm pregnant women. Well, that's because they were never tested on, pre on, on uh, pregnant women. Right. There couldn't be any evidence because they, were never, they weren't a part of the so trial. It's so disingenuous. It's so awful. And when you, and I talk about the case of thalidomide, you know, as a parallel um, episode of history where tragically, in that case, pregnant women also were excluded from initial trials. So thalidomide looked really safe, but it turned out that it had adverse effects on specifically pregnant women. And thousands of babies died as a result, and thousands more were born severely deformed with like fin-like limbs and stuff. And so, but the, the chemical was on the market for five years before it was removed because it takes time to sort out the data and to uh, conclude that, oh, it's not just correlation it's actually causation so uh so this the similar sort of marketing scheme was used with these vaccines they weren't tested on pregnant women so it's actually medical malpractice to tell a pregnant woman to to get this wow. i mean there's actually no evidence there yeah there's no evidence that it harms them she was saying but that's because there was no evidence at all there's no evidence <laughs> right right Okay, so that, there's to, a big difference. Okay, so back to Julian Assange. If Julian Assange can be, uh, you know, th thrown away in solitary confinement for 175 years, or executed, or just killed through the process of extraditing him because he's been effectively tortured for the last 10 years um, for exposing war crimes, then that that would set a horrible precedent where journalists would be really afraid to report the truth, and uh, by extension. Um, any kind of truth. So if it becomes uh, like a pharma truth, you know, that supposedly you're a criminal for standing up against, um, 
against the the government because you disagree with their take on whether you should be taking this substance. Um, if they have the power to censor someone like uh, Julian Assange, who did nothing but reveal the war crimes of the U.S. government itself, then they will have the power to censor anyone for anything um, for decades into the future, if not, you know, a complete destruction of the Republic. And you saw this, and I talk about it in the book as well, when the government started talking about, we're going to have this disinformation governance bureau, which is going to decide, you know, yes. what people are allowed to entertain as a, as a, as a hypothesis. scene director. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> crazy idea, and it's incredibly Orwellian, especially because the government pumped out so much disinformation and misinformation throughout the entire pandemic, and yet they're asserting the right to determine, you know, what can be said and what cannot be said. It's a violation of the Constitution well, of the United States. Lori, my favorite is my favorite is malinformation, which is true information, but because it goes against the regime, it you can be prosecuted for it. You can be called a terrorist for that. I mean, yeah, that's, no, we, that's like crazy. No, it's it's a complete um, attack on the fundamental principles um, of the Republic of the U.S. And if if this if this is allowed to go forward, we are not going to be free for very much longer because we're going to have this pharma techno state where these people, these small committees, decide that we have to do this, and they criminalize anyone who not only disagrees but who uh, stands up for him or herself and for other people when they disagree. So, um, I think that it's very da- it's a very dangerous period of history and. Um, it part of it can be. I mean, governments have always been propagandistic. They're always trying to get their people to comply, particularly in wartime, to go along with their wars. But now it's become more and more dangerous because we have government officials who think that they can tell you what medical treatments you should undergo. This is unprecedented in history. We don't have this aside from Nazi Germany, of course. You know, but here we have right. people who are basically denying the results or the conclusions of the Nuremberg the Nuremberg Court. And that's why I include the Nuremberg Code as an appendix, because people need to read this. I mean, this was a settled matter in, I think it was 1945, was it? 19, it might have been 1948 when they actually published this. But the idea is, no, you I cannot experiment yeah. on human beings against their will Um and and you have to give them full information. Otherwise, if you're just deceiving them, you're coercing them through deception. So, so they just threw all of this out. You know, suddenly it became possible for the government to force you by mandate to to get a medical treatment, um, even when you had decided it wasn't in your best interest. And this is a horrible turning point in history, and we need to stand up against it. And that's one of the reasons why I published right. this book as a collection of essays because I don't want people to stop talking about it. And I have seen some, there are some signs that at least some of the populace is coming around. You know, they started to become a little bit more skeptical when vaccinated people kept getting COVID. And that was like, ah, so Mm -hmm. this isn't actually a panacea. And then when the government started saying, oh, actually, you know, you don't just need two shots. You actually need a booster. And then, oh, I guess you need a fourth booster. Oh, I guess you need a fifth booster. I guess you need a booster every year with your flu and your RSV. So at some point, people are like, enough. You know, I'm not taking your snake oil right. anymore. And I've seen some positive signs. You know, people who complied with everything. They did the masking. They did the vaccines. And they said, I'm, and now they're saying, I'm done. I'm not getting your boosters. I don't want your, 
I don't want your nonsense. I'm not going to be your guinea pig ever again. <laughs> so, um, right. so there are signs that people have come around, but we have to keep talking about this. And this is why I, I was glad that you invited I, me on. And I'm talking about this, these matters wherever and whenever I can. I think it's it's vital, and and especially as we're coming up to. I mean, th- we're we're talking about history in a way, but we're also talking about the present because it, it's things. It is a. I think your analogy was right, and I would say it's kind of across the Rubicon moment where, um, you know, are we going to allow the government to have this kind of power over our bodies and over these medical things and and um, be basically a, a a totalitarian state? I mean, there's there's not another term that you can use, and if if you are forcing people to inject themselves, there's nothing but totalitarianism that that that, that can be called. Um, that's right. And it's also fascism because you have the what's what's emerging yeah. is the pharma techno state where the government and pharma have joined forces. And, you know, for pharma, it's great. They all they care about is profit. So um, I, mm-hmm. I discussed this in the pharma revolution is being televised, which is an essay where I explain what I have decided are the four stages of the pharma takeover. So so pharma pharmaceutical industry has always tried to get doctors to prescribe their various cures, you know, for this, that, and the other thing. Um, and it's very, very lucrative. So that's always gone on. Uh, they've always advertised yeah. in journals and tried to woo doctors um, with various um, schemes. Um, and uh, I think that one of the turning points in this trajectory was when Prozac was launched and other lifestyle meds in 1987, 1988, right in there somewhere. And as these psych meds became um, taken up and prescribed to people for what used to be considered ordinary human responses, you know, anxiety, you know, or, or sadness, you know, you lose a loved one, you're mm-hmm. really sad. Instead of just working through the grief on your own, now they have all these magic pills that are going to make you better. So, so the antidepressants, um, the SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are basically happy pills. So they make you happy, like no matter what. So, 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 right. so you have a horrible job, you hate it, but you take your SSR and you're like, oh, I guess my job's not so bad anymore. So, so, so they change your, they change you psychologically and they sold like, many, many of these pills because they have a positive effect on people. And then another thing pharma did in that same period in the 90s, especially 80s and 90s, is they they got their foot in the door of public schools where they started administering these batteries where you would go through this checklist. And if if a child exhibited all of these symptoms, this meant that he or she was suffering from ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, for which, of course, there was a drug. The first one was Ritalin, but they've gone on and on. We have our cure right here. Yeah. So here's our cure. (laughs) You need to take these drugs. And then, of course, uh, the Ritalin had side effects and uh, induced, you know, further syndrome. So kids kept being prescribed more and more drugs. A lot of people um, particularly foster children have been really drugged up for, for like their entire childhood because they're considered problematic. So this used to be, you know, you're a problematic, rebellious child, you know, there are things you can do. You can go do sports or whatever. Now you're drugged. Okay. So that generated a huge amount of income and it was just, they got, they somehow got into the, into the school psychology 
offices and persuaded all of these teachers and administrators to think that you have to drug all these kids. Okay. So it's, <laughs> that's, it's a disease now if you act up. Okay. Um, and then of course, the, you know, Vi Viagra and other lifestyle meds came through and these were all being prescribed not by psychiatrists, but by general practitioners. So they were doling out free samples and people would get a little bit addicted. It's not addiction in the sense of narcotics, but it becomes more difficult right. to cope once you stop using these drugs because they change the receptor density um, for the various molecules. So, um, so you're, so for example, with serotonin, you get used to having your brain flooded with serotonin. And then if you suddenly stop taking the SSRI, you become really depressed because um, your your body your brain has actually changed to accommodate that to equilibrate so so because they started getting so much more money from the psych meds and the lifestyle meds and the whole ADHD scheme is, is the way I look at it um, they had more and more money and then they got into research institutes where research was started to be, um, funded by pharma, research is very expensive. So pharma would fund research. And of course, they would fund research that was going to be profitable, profitable to them. And then the more money they got, the more they began to lobby politicians and also the regulatory agencies that got their foot in, their, in the door there. A real turning point was 1997 when Pharma began to advertise direct consumer on television. So if you watch television, you'll see right. all these pharma ads for all these drugs. Um, so Ask you'll see your like someone who looks, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone looks depressed, and then they're under a cloud, and then they take the little pill, and then like the sun comes out, and so, and then so you, so you may have no idea, you know, <clears throat> what what the drug is actually for. And, but, but at the end, it looks like there was a positive effect on this person. So you go to your doctor and ask your doctor for the drug. And so this really enriched pharma. And so that increased the, the power of the pharma firms via lobbyists because they had more and more money and more and more marketing. And the more they marketed, the more pills they sold, and then the more lobbyists they had and the more effect they had on, on uh, the politicians. And then in this, what I call the fourth stage of the pharma revolution, they got their seat at the table with governments and persuaded governments to mandate their shots. It was no longer that, oh, we want you to, we want these, we want to persuade doctors to prescribe our shots, or we want to, pers we want to persuade school administrators that these children need to be drugged, <clears throat> or we need to get to people on their sofas who are bored and get them to ask their doctors for drugs. It was no longer a matter of persuasion. With the coronapocalypse, it became mandatory. So you saw government leaders all right. over the world, whether in France, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, they tried it. They were, they were um, at least some of the mandates were uh, struck down in the courts, but some of them were well, not. You definitely had Biden, you had Biden saying, we're, we're, we're getting impatient. No, we're getting it was, impatient it with was you. wild. That's a, good, that's a good example of him talking to us as though we're toddlers. He, he got up and he said, our patience is wearing thin. And it was like, right. what yeah. are you talking about? It's like, it's like, so who is we? I mean, I guess we is me and <laughs> Pfizer, you know, because, because Pfizer is yeah. waiting for us to roll up our sleeve and you know, we've decided we don't want it, but he decided to mandate mandate it anyway through the OSHA mandate on employees of companies with a hundred or more um, people working there. And then he got yeah. out there and he pushed these nonsensical 
slogans, as I said earlier, such as we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated workers, which at this point, you know, you've just thrown logic out the window. That means nothing. I mean, if it's a mm-hmm. vaccine, then the vaccinated right. person doesn't need to be protected. It's a completely to be crazy protected. thing to say. And yet people were saying this. And so so that is why it's really scary when you see that people are still pushing for things like vaccine passports, even though these vaccines do not they don't stop transmission or infection, which no. means that they actually serve no public health pretext whatsoever. And if they don't serve a public health pretext, right. there's no reason the government should have any say in what you decide to do. That is a choice between you and your doctor. And yet you see still Absolutely. at the level, at the global level, at the World Health Organization, they're trying to push for these global schemes of vaccine passports, which which are going to be used if they succeed to severely limit our freedom all over the world. And it's yeah. it's frightening. So people need to stand up against this while we still can. So, Lori, I, first of all, where can people get your book? Where would you like them to go to pick up your book? Well, you can find it uh, at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, it's available as an ebook or a dead tree version. Um, you can get it right at Amazon in any of the, of the Amazon sites, no matter what country you're in. And, um, you know, you can read about it at the Libertarian Institute. And I will be issuing an audiobook at some point, although it takes a while to <laughs> create audiobooks. So, but for now, the ebook and the. Well, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, so that's great. And I do hope people will read it and just talk about these issues. Um, it's really important for people who suffered um, <clears throat> the, the horrible effects of this propaganda campaign. You know, lots of relationships were destroyed and friendships and families were divided over this. And it's going to take people time to to get over what happened because so many people were so outspoken. And as you mentioned, we have receipts. (laughs) We know what these people said Mm -hmm. because they're out there on social media. And um, while we don't want to forget what these people said, I think we do have to try to be as understanding as, as possible and just try to use reason to show them like they were in the grips of this cult like phenomenon. Um, and you know, it's time to move on. And I, I have seen some, some signs that people are coming around, as I said, you know, among, I can even say among my, my own family members who, you know, some of them were pushing me to get vaccines, even though I had survived COVID and I tried as calmly as yeah. possible to explain to them why it was completely unscientific for them to be <laughs> doing this. But they had and, and, all of them had Anthony Fauci and this whole apparatus behind them. And, right. and um, they felt like uh, they should believe those people before they should believe, you know, me with my little chemistry degree or or anyone, actually anyone, even epidemiologists. Right. People who. Right. Um, who served on uh, boards and everything, but they disagreed with the government line and, or I call it the company line. And so it's time for everyone to look at how manipulated all of us were from the very beginning. And and some of us sort of figured it out early on and some people still haven't figured it out, but there's hope, you know, as long as people still have functioning brains. I agree with that. I, I also think it's important that we keep the conversation going because, um, it is, I think, you know, 
who the 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 people that will or i should say the entities that will never apologize is government Mm -hmm. all they'll do is double down and try again and so it's important that we keep the conversation going so when they double down and try again they feel or you know at least feel that there's a sort of damocles above them to, to keep them from trying it again and and that can only happen with conversation and popular consent Absolutely. And we really have to stand up uh, for our right to free speech. So again, coming back to the Julian Assange case, that it's super important that we do not budge on that on that point. If we lose free speech, then we lose freedom because free speech is the foundation of any democracy. You can't you can't have a democracy without free speech. You have to have the marketplace of ideas. We're all mired in opinion. We have to debate these ideas and come up with our, our own conclusions about what it what it is reasonable to do and not to do. We cannot succumb to this to this view that somehow the government is better situated to assess the facts than we are, because the government is comprised only of fellow human beings. They're all human beings. They're all prone to error, and many of them, unfortunately, are also. Um, laboring under conditions of conflict of interest. And so when you have, when you throw the yeah. financial factor in that can really skew their behavior. And uh, one thing I advise people is when, when you're, un- when you're thinking about whether to follow the advice of one of these people, look at their connections and look at their funding. And uh, you know, if you want to explain something as bizarre as what we just lived through, the best way to do it is to follow the money and see what happened in in, in terms of um, finances. Absolutely. Lori Calhoun, questioning the COVID company line, critical thinking in hysterical times. I hope you come back. This was fun. Oh, yeah. I'd be happy to discuss um, more of the book. I mean, there's a lot in there and there are so many topics. I mean, there basically, is. it covered like so many important um I mean, the crisis covered so many important uh, philosophical and political topics uh, as it as it progressed. So, and they're still here. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I'd love. I I will be definitely looking for more of your work, and and uh, I, I I encourage people to read this book. It's it's a powerhouse, and again, needs to get into the public consciousness. These ideas have to continue to flow. So, thank you again for coming on. And if love remains, thank you very much for having me. Mike is gone. You are listening to And If Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization.